Our study this morning is in the book of 1 Chronicles. Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Chronicles 13. On face value, this really is one of the more confusing texts in the Bible. Not because the Lord isn't clear in what He's saying, but because it just takes some strange turns that we might not expect. Within the passage, there are three people who seemingly have good intentions and who seem to be trying to please the Lord and honor the Lord in their actions. But only one is blessed by the Lord. And it's surprising which one of the three receives God's favor. It's not the one who appears to try to protect what is precious to the Lord, and it's not the king of Israel who is a man after God's own heart and whose life is chronicled throughout Scripture and who wrote the Psalms that we study even to this day, including one last week, and who was given the covenant of an eternal throne for his family. It's not those two guys. It is a little-known man who's mentioned only a few times in the Bible, and we have almost zero detail about his life. We know very little about him. We don't know much about his background or where he came from or his family or his occupation or anything like that. He's just mentioned a few times, and yet... He's blessed in a unique way by the Lord. Now, all three of these guys were close to the presence of the Lord within the span of a few hours. And yet, one ends up dead, one ends up angry with the Lord, and one ends up having his whole household blessed by God. So we may want to ask at this point, out of our curiosity and spiritual wondering, is God discriminant? Does he help some and not help others? Does he bless some and not help others? Are are some favored more? Do some receive more from the Lord, even though some are trying to have good intentions? Now, we need to dive into the text to be able to answer that. And I want to talk this morning about the decisions that we make in seeking to please the Lord and the importance of a sincere heart, because understanding those two factors will be the only way we can really understand such a huge discrepancy in the end result. Each of these men's close to the ark. Each of these men is close to the presence of the Lord. Each of these men seems to have the right intentions. And yet, the bottom line, the end result, is completely different. Let's read the text. First Chronicles chapter 13. We're going to read the whole chapter. Then David consulted with the captains of the thousands and the hundreds, even with every leader. David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and if it's from the Lord our God, let us send everywhere to our kinsmen who remain in all the land of Israel, also the priests and the Levites who are with them in their cities, with pasture lands, that they may meet with us. And let us bring back the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. Then all the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David assembled all Israel together from the Shihor of Egypt, even to the entrance of Amath, to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. David and all Israel went up to Bala, that is, to Kiriath-Jerim, which belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord who was enthroned above the cherubim, where his name is called. They carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, even with songs and with lyres, harps, tambourines, cymbals, and with trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, 
Uzzah put his hand to hold the ark because the oxen nearly upset it. The anger of the Lord, verse 10, burned against Uzzah. So he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark and he died there before God. Then David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And he called that place Perizuzzah to this day. David was afraid of God that day, saying, How can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark with him to the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Thus the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months, and the Lord blessed the family of Obed-Edom with all that he had. Now at the center of this passage, the center of the study is the ark of the covenant, which we have seen in past studies represented the literal presence of the Lord. And you see in verse 6 that God even calls us by, called it by this unique name. He calls it the ark of God, the Lord who was enthroned above the cherubim, where his name is called. One fact that there can be no doubt about for the people of Israel at this point is that the ark represented the testimony of God's presence and God's power and God's work and God's mercy and his leading. From the time that God says to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai, I want you to take some acacia wood, I want you to build a box, I want you to overlay it with gold, and that's going to be the Ark of the Testimony. From the time he does that to the time that they then build it during the construction of the first tabernacle, to the time that they go to the Jordan River, <coughs> excuse me, and the priests stand in the middle of the Jordan, as we've studied before, and the people walk by and go into the, to the promised land across dry ground. Through all of that process, the one consistent is that the people knew what the ark stood for. But for the 70 years prior to this passage, the ark has been neglected. It has not been among the people, which was a statement about the spiritual condition prior to the nation of the nation prior to David's reign. For seven decades, the ark hasn't been around. For seven decades, it has not been at the center of what needs to happen in the nation. It has not been the focal point. The presence of God has not been the focal point of the people's hearts. Now turn back just for a minute. Keep your place here. Turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 3. And just browse the text, and you can look at it later in your personal study this week. But just browse the text and let me tell you what's happening here. In 1 Samuel 3, Samuel gets his calling when he's a child. He gets his calling to be a prophet of Israel. And that's significant because things were in such bad shape spiritually in the nation. The high priest was a man named Eli. And Eli had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Now, Hophni and Phinehas were not following the Lord. And that's an understatement. They stole from the offering when people brought the sacrifice. They'd take some from themselves. They, they were living in a way that was deep in sin. And you can see in the text in 1 Samuel 3 that the Spirit calls them worthless men. They were worthless to God. They were worthless to the nation. In fact, they were driving the nation down. And the result of that was a spiritual coldness in the nation. When spiritual leaders are not following the Lord, the people struggle. When spiritual leaders are not driving forth the word of God and upholding the standard of the Lord for the nation, what will happen to the nation? It will not become more spiritual. It will become more carnal. And that's exactly what happens here. 
Now, this is all brought together in chapter 4 when the Philistines come and they attack. And the net result of that is that during that battle, they capture the Ark of the Covenant and they take it away. And you see at the end of chapter 4 in verse 21 that it says the glory of God departed from Israel. Now, this is a very, very serious situation. And the Philistines thought, well, it'll be to our advantage. We'll get the Ark of the Covenant. We know that has power. We know that that has uh, symbolically meant the presence of God. So we're going to take that and we'll have advantage. What they did not realize at that point is that God doesn't dwell among sin. And because they didn't realize that, they put the Ark in the temple of their main god, Dagon. Dagon was the god of fertility and the crops. And they bring the ark into his temple, <coughs> excuse me, and, and they put it before Dagon as, as both a mocking of Israel and a mocking of the Lord and as a statement that, Dagon, you're our god, and, and here is another god that's not worthy of you, so it's going to be at your feet and worship you. What they don't expect and what happens is when they go back to the temple in the morning, the head of Dagon, the head of the statue, is on the ground, face down in front of the ark. And the hands, which symbolized power, were cut off of the statue, and they laid right there at the ark. And then God broke tumors out on the people. And throughout the whole nation, people were struck by these large tumors that were unpleasant and unhappy. Now, it didn't take the Philistines long to realize this is a, a, an untenable situation. We've got to get this ark out of here. This is not a good situation. So, listen now. They put it on a cart drawn by two cows. And they wander off with the cart. And they kind of follow the distance. And the cows walk. And they walk all the way back to Israel. And as soon as they find a town, they drop it off and run away. Now, the people of the town, which was Beth Shemesh, don't have any respect for the ark because the ark hasn't been around for seven months and because spiritually the nation's cold at this point. So they get the bright idea, hey, let's look inside, even though God had specifically said in the law, don't touch my ark. So they open up the ark and try to peer inside. And at that point, God is so angry at the disrespect to his name and the disrespect to his presence, that he strikes down over 50,000 people. Now the people of Beth Shemesh know this is not a good situation, so they take the ark to a place called Kiriath-Jerim. That's the background of 1 Samuel 2 and 3. Now, as they take the ark to Kiriath-Jerim, the people of Kiriath-Jerim don't say, you know what, we need to get this back to Jerusalem. Instead, for 60 years, the ark sits at Kiriath-Jerim, and nobody does anything with it. It's neglected, it's avoided, it's ignored, and it just sits there. Now go back to our text, 1 Chronicles 13. David finally becomes king after the whole 40 years of mess with Saul. And David now is put on the throne, and as he becomes king, he remembers the ark. And he senses a leading from the Lord to bring it back to its rightful place in Jerusalem, believing correctly that they need to have the presence of the Lord 
central to their existence as a people and as a nation and as a spiritual body. Now, the key reason is in verse 3 of chapter 13, where David says, here's the problem. We did not seek it in the days of Saul. In other words, for 40 years of Saul's poor leadership and misdirection of the nation and spiritual abandonment of God, in those 40 years, we didn't seek the presence of the Lord. We didn't desire for God to be near us. We did our own thing. I'm king now. We're going to do it differently. We're going to bring the ark back. We're going to put it central to our nation. And we, as a people, are going to seek the Lord. (coughs) Now, I don't want you to miss the importance of that thought. That a nation and God's people, including his church, including this church, rises or falls on one key question. Are they seeking the Lord? Hear that. This nation, and I'm not being political in any way, this nation will not succeed if we're not seeking the Lord. This church will not succeed if we are not seeking the Lord. Our lives, our families, our marriages will not succeed unless we are seeking the Lord. We have a prayer meeting this week. I strongly encourage you to be there. We're going to come together as a body to seek the Lord. And at some point in the not-so-distant future, our prayer meeting really needs to be the most important meeting that we have. My goal as the pastor of this church is to get us to a weekly prayer meeting where we are calling on the Lord. It will be more important than Sunday morning. It will be more important than Bible study. It will be more important than Awana. Because if we are not seeking the Lord and asking for His presence to be among us, then we are going through the motions without His guidance and without His power. So it is vitally important that we ask the Lord, direct our paths. And if we don't do that, and if we ever doubt that, God will rein us back in. I think He's doing it with our nation right now. I think He's doing it economically. I think He's doing it with the world right now. Maybe as a last gasp before He returns. I don't know. But we as a people need to be seeking Him. Now notice in the text David's words and actions because he is the first of the three men that we're going to look at and it seems like he should be blessed. Let's bring the ark back. Let's bring the presence of God back to the nation. Wonderful. David, finally we have some good leadership. Finally you're bringing the spiritual component into our nation. But there are some small subtleties in the text here that show some presumption and show some weak choices. Look at verse 2. After believing the Lord has stirred him to bring the ark back, and that certainly would have been preferable, notice what David does. He goes to the people for approval. And even his words here seem a little off. He says, If it seems good to you, and if it's from the Lord our God, let us send everywhere to our kinsmen who remain in the land of Israel, the priests and the Levites who are with them in the cities, that they may meet with us. Now that seems good, and as good and right as that action might be, we don't see any record in the text that David first sought the Lord. We only see in verse 1 that he consulted with the captains and that he consulted with every leader. Now, don't you think that if he had first sought the Lord, the Spirit would have taken time to give that detail because he takes time to give the detail that David met with all the leaders? But we don't see evidence here that David sought the Lord. So he goes to the people 
and he speaks in kind of a strange order. Nothing's accidental in Scripture. Look at how it's listed. He says, if it seems good to you, because how many know that the people had incredible spiritual discernment at this point? If it seems good to you, oh, and by the way, if it's from the Lord, then let's bring the ark back. Now, there are three problems with this. First of all, he asked them if they liked the idea, rather than saying, this is what we must do to be blessed by God. The second thing he did is he should have been absolutely sure that this was from the Lord, like he would be in the next chapter when he goes before the Lord and he says, do you want us to fight the Philistines? And God says, yes. And he says, let me double check. Do you want us to go fight the Philistines? And God says, yes, go, you'll, you'll win. So shouldn't David, rather than assuming, shouldn't he have made sure that God put his stamp on this and said, this is what you're supposed to do? Now, logically, it made sense to bring the ark back, but we don't see a record that David asked the Lord. Third problem is that if it was from the Lord, he wouldn't have had to equivocate. If it seems good to you, and what's the next word? If it's from the Lord. When the, word, when the Lord gives you a word, when he directs you by his scripture, when the spirit, not being mystical here, when the spirit guides and directs your paths, you don't have to say if. When it's by faith, and you have gotten the Lord's approval, and the Lord has confirmed it through his word, through prayer, through the council of witnesses, when, when all that has happened, you don't have to say, mm, I wonder if this is right. You know with a certainty that it is from the Lord. David should have been able to say with confidence, really doesn't matter what you guys think, we're doing this. Because God, in my prayer, has directed me that this is right, it is, makes sense, it's what we need as a nation, and I just want your approval, but we're doing it anyway. How different would it have been if they had done it right? Again, this is the right concept. David's right to recognize and honor the Lord. He's restoring worship. He's correcting past mistakes. But he follows that up in his zeal with another action that, that really shows a lack of wisdom. Look back at verse 6. Right after the Spirit uses this unmistakable name for the ark, this this odd designation, the ark of God, the Lord who was enthroned above the cherubim where his name is called. It's, it's like one big piece, one big name. Right after the Spirit does that, the text says what? They carried the ark on a new cart. And David and the people celebrated with all their might. Now stop there for a minute. Before we see the problem, concentrate on that part that they celebrated in verse 8, with all their might. There is no doubt that when we're in the presence of the Lord, like we are this morning and like we will be Wednesday night and like we are personally when we study and pray, there is no doubt that that should be full of celebration and joy and gladness. I even suggested that last week, that we be more demonstrative, more open about serving the Lord, not to make a show, not to get people to say what's going on with that person, but just to praise the Lord. One of the things that's fun about singing in the choir during worship is watching you. 
watching you praise the Lord, watching you close your eyes, watching you lift your hands, watching you, as I said last week, not care what the person next to you thinks about your voice. Because we're supposed to praise the Lord without reservation. One of the things that bothers me so much about postmodern Christianity is it's so reflective and so gloomy. And it's just oh, like we can't possibly have any joy in the Lord. I don't know about you this morning. I don't care it's raining outside. I have joy in the Lord. I want to praise the Lord this morning. I got excited coming here and walking in and greeting you and seeing people and listening to us worship and singing. This is a time of joy. It's not a time of, oh. You get rid of your, uh on your own before the Lord and confess your sin and get that out. And then you come here full of joy. Let's not make Christianity so depressing. So many of the lyrics of, of new songs are so self-centered rather than God-centered. Listen, this is not the time to be introspective. This is the time to be victorious. We're together as a body praising the Lord. It's like the song that the choir said, Lord, we love you. Lord, we praise you. We exalt you. We lift your name. We fill the sanctuary with your praise. That's all it is. It's about him. And then we keep saying, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah. You can never praise the Lord enough. That's worship. Praising his name, not being stuck on our problems. How many know that he delivers us from those problems? How many know that he gives us victory over sin, that he makes us overcomers through Christ? If you walked in here this morning kind of down and discouraged and defeated, I pray you don't walk out feeling that way because once you are in God's presence, you know he's faithful. And that's what the people are saying. That's what they're doing here. That's why it seems right that they're celebrating. This is a big worship service. It's joyful and happy. And the whole nation's praising God. But crowds don't always equal blessing, do they? Just because there's a lot of people doesn't mean that it's right. And there's an underlying problem here. And in just a minute, they're going to go from loud celebration to stunned mourning. And it's all because they are not treating the presence of the Lord correctly. Worship becomes worthless if it is misguided and misappropriated. Needless to say, if worship is not directed toward the Lord and we're drawing to attention to ourselves, that's a problem. But worship always must be done with awe and respect for the word of the Lord. And that's what they get wrong here. Even though David knew the law, and was responsible to lead them, he did it wrong. If you're taking notes, write down Exodus 25. I want you to look at it later. Because in Exodus 25, God gave very specific directions to Moses. When he built the Ark of the Covenant, on each corner put a gold ring. And through that gold ring should be poles made of acacia wood so that the Ark can be carried only by the Levites. And in the passage it says, never remove the poles. Never take the poles out because you need to remember this is the only method I approve for moving my ark. So even as they're lifting the ark in First Chronicles 13 onto this cart, they're using the poles 
that are supposed to remind them that it should only be carried by the Levites. But here is the mistake they made. They used the exact same method that the Philistines had used. The Philistines in Scripture always represent evil. They always represent opposition to the way of the Lord. So here they copy the Philistines. They put it on a cart. They get two oxen. They put them at the front. And they start to bring the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of the Lord, where the Lord resides between the cherubim and dispenses His mercy. They put that on a cart led by two filthy cows, and they start to walk to Jerusalem. Now David should have known better. Clearly he loved the Lord. Clearly he valued God's presence. Clearly he's calling the people to spiritual revival. His intent is good, but his execution is wrong. The ark is being mistreated. The Levites aren't in their place. And the leader has implicitly approved of the sin. And that means that the worship could not be humble, it could not be reverent, it could not be directed properly. There's no sacrifice here. This essentially is just a show. And no one has the discernment to stop it. David should not have forgotten the law. They should not have forgotten the lessons that the Philistines learned in handling the ark. And when we disregard the word of God and we ignore the examples of the past that are there to instruct us and warn us, it puts us in a very tenuous position spiritually and it will never end well. So as they do this, they further escalate the error. And as they continue to escalate the error now, the Lord steps in and he says enough. And he brings a punishment among the people that at first glance seems harsh and seems Uh, actually unbalanced in its impunity until we look at the framework around it and the intent behind it. Look back at the text in verse 9. Here's the second of the three men. Uzzah. Now it seems like Uzzah should be blessed. As the people are playing music and singing and celebrating, and as the ark is being carried by this cart and by these animals... Oxen, as they're walking, stumble. It's a perfect metaphor for what's going on spiritually. Now, as they hit that uneven road, picture it now in your head, and they stumble a little bit, and the cart apparently starts to tilt. And it tilts enough that the Ark of the Covenant, which apparently they had not secured well, starts to kind of slide. And Uzzah, who's driving reaches down to try to steady it. Now, that would seem natural. It would seem logical. We might even say it's very commendable that he prevents the ark from falling onto the ground. But notice the next sentence in verse 10. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, for he struck him down because he put his hand out to the ark, and he died there before God. It seems to make sense to steady the ark But that was exactly the point of the sin. Uzzah at that point makes no distinction that the ark is the holy presence of God. Now again, look back at verse 7, because the Spirit had been very specific. He had shown that they knew what the ark was. 
But while Uzzah's intentions may have been good, he is disobedient to the word. You know, part of the trying of our faith that James 1 talks about is the testing of the integrity of our obedience. It's the testing of the integrity of how we adhere and how we listen to the word of God. God's word this morning and every morning until Christ comes is not subjective. God's word is not open to our feelings and open to our moods and open to our biases and controlled by how comfortable we are with it. God's word is his word. And we are told in scripture to rightly divide it and to live by it. Part of the challenge for you and I as believers, some of you long-term believers, is to not become so accustomed to it that it drives us to the point of indifference. And believer, you know that happens, right? Ah, I've read that passage before. I've heard messages about Uzzah before. Okay, well, I don't really have any choice. I can't leave because that would be bad form, so I'll sit here and listen. I've heard him talk about, you know, obedience to God, listening to the word and prayer. We've talked about that a lot. And, oh, okay, I'll, I'll try to find something new. Listen, the, the enemy, if nothing else, pushes us to think that, let alone our familiarity with the Bible and our familiarity with what we've heard before. And this goes to study of the word. It goes to coming to his throne in prayer. It goes to listening and yielding the Holy Spirit. We are in danger in those wonderful privileges when that becomes familiar to us. One of the things I love about the Word of God is every time I study it, there's a new nugget. Every single time you go to it, the Lord reveals something new. I've preached passages 10, 11 times I still go back and study them. And God says, what about that? And I go, I've never seen that before. I've preached that passage ten times. I've never seen it. We need to find the joy of the study of the Word of God that when we get into it, there is something fresh the Lord wants to reveal to us and show us and apply to our lives. So it's not just, oh, Psalm 64 again. I've read that one a thousand times. No, there's something fresh there that God wants to reveal. When you pray... When you go to the throne of grace, God has a fresh work for you. Not just same old routine, I'll crank out my prayer and I'll be done and I'll go about my life. No, the Lord wants to meet with you. The problem that Uzzah has is he becomes casually familiar with the presence of God. Seems reasonable, seems logical, but God says, "Uh uh-uh, you became callous toward me. That's my presence. You don't touch it. I have specific laws about this. It never should have been on the cart in the first place. And I know it makes sense to you, but I said, don't touch it. So when Uzzah tries to do the right thing in his mind, and he reaches out because he's so familiar with it, and he's not in awe of it, God says, "Uh uh-uh, you're dead. God wants his ark on the ground, then God will put his ark on the ground. It makes no sense. But God says, you follow what I say. And here's the deal. Even the smallest letdown in our awe of God, even the slightest deviation in terms of trusting Him completely and following His Word can lead to bigger problems. It's been so long for Israel since they really cared about the Lord. 
So much of the prior 70 years had been about them. The neglect of the ark, the demand for a king, even though God said, I will lead you. And they're like, yeah, yeah, great. We want a man. And then choosing not the man whose heart was right, but choosing the man who was popular and good looking. And then for 40 years, there's a rampant lack of spiritual desire and they allow their king to chase God's anointed one and hunt him down like a wild animal and nobody says a word. And God's power is absent in their midst. And now it seems like they're doing the right thing, but the people still aren't saying, wait a minute, the law says only the Levites carry the ark. And what's shocking here is, even David, look at the text now, even David kind of forgets this. Because when the Lord strikes Uzzah down, look at verse 11, then David became what? Tell me. Angry. David, in the vernacular, is ticked. He's irritated. He's boiling. His ire is up. And he responds not with humility, not with clarity, not with, oh, this is my fault. He responds with anger. He knows better. But as he looks at the corpse laying on the ground next to the ark, and as the celebration instantly stops and everything's quiet, and people, you know, crowds are, oh, 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 what in the world? What happened? Why did the Lord do this? You can just hear the murmuring. And David, his posture is anger. And then quickly, I think the Lord convicts him, and instantly he becomes And all of a sudden, the holiness of the Lord overwhelms him. And he has that fresh realization. And he falls into awe and reverence rather than callousness and pride. And now more than ever, he understands the power of the presence of the Lord. And he suddenly gets very timid about the ark. He says, how could we possibly have the ark in our midst? Don't miss that. I'm about to go to the next and final point. But don't miss that. The presence of the Lord should inspire awe. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I know this is a hotel ballroom, but we are in the presence of the Lord and we should be in awe. We should walk in here and worship and study His Word and fellowship with reverence and respect and awe because this for today is the house of the Lord. And if we're casual or flippant or distracted or thinking about something else or worried about what so-and-so has on or or angry at somebody or we haven't forgiven our wife for something they did or we're we're irritated with our husband because he's doing whatever, if all that's occupying our minds, we're we're basically in the same condition they were in 1 Chronicles 13. We've become so familiar with the Lord that we're not thinking of the Lord. What a dangerous position that is. Now here's where the account gets interesting. Let's close with this. Instead of taking the ark to Jerusalem, like he planned, verse 13, 
David takes it to the house of the third man. First we had David, second we had Uzzah, now we have the third man, Obed-Edom. And the ark stays there for three months, and the Spirit says in the text that the Lord blessed the family of Obed-Edom with all that he had. Notice the stark contrast here. All that Obed-Edom does is receive the ark. He's not fearful. He's not hesitant even after what just happened. He doesn't put conditions on hosting it. He's not impatient to get rid of it. He simply welcomes the presence and the power of the Lord. Now there is no way when the day starts that Obed-Edom could expect when the sun sets that the Ark of the Covenant is going to be sitting in his living room. Because the Ark of the Covenant was reserved for the holy place. But apparently, Obed-Edom is available and his heart is ready. He is humble, he is holy, he is righteous, he is unhesitant, and he is not worried about what may happen. So when David shows up with the Ark and says, can we put this in your den? Obed-Edom doesn't say, "Uh uh-uh, no, 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 wait a minute. I saw what happened out there. I heard the stories about the Philistines. They're still going crazy with these tumors. And, uh, and then I heard about Beth Shemesh and, and Kiryatir. I know about all that. No way you're bringing that in here. One small step, this is like a time bomb. One small step could cause thousands to die. I don't want anything to do with it. Think about how much he would have missed out if he had been fearful and hesitant to abide in the presence of the Lord. And listen, I feel this very strongly. The Lord convicted me of this last night. I believe some of you are in that place this morning. You're hesitant to get close to the Lord because you're fearful of what He might ask of you. You're hesitant to get close to Him because you're fearful that He might want to change you, that He might want to alter your plans, that that He might say, you're going to have to yield to me. And we all need to remember that fear stunts faith. It paralyzes our confidence because it reveals a self-centered focus rather than a deep trust in the Lord. So some this morning, me even at times, we're we're fearful to get close to the Lord because what's going to happen if I do? If I really study His Word, it says it's going to cut asunder my soul and spirit. God's going to ask me to give that up or change that or alter that or speak differently or talk to somebody about Him. And maybe if I ignore it and avoid it, I won't have to be responsible to it. I don't want to... I don't want to come to prayer meeting. I don't want to pray because when I do, I don't know, it's awkward. People, I have to pray in front of people and and I don't know what they're going to think. And and then if I do pray, God's going to convict me and I don't like being convicted because it's not comfortable. And and you know what? I'll find something else to do Wednesday. Imagine if Obed-Edom had said, door's closed. Don't bring it in here. Lesson is simple. When our heart is right before the Lord, we don't have anything to fear other than the presence of the Lord not being with us at all times. If you are walking with Christ, if you are yielded to the Spirit, there is nothing to fear. If God changes your plans... And goodness knows, I've appreciated that in the last year of my life. 
If God changes your plans, then so be it. If God wants to convict you of something and draw out sin out of your life and search those recesses of your heart to find that one thing that's holding you back from really being a child of God the way you should be, then so be it. Get it out. Get in his presence and get clean. That's why Obed-Edom didn't get stuck on the broken statue of Dagon or the tumors of the Philistines or the death of the people in Beth Shemesh or even Uzzah because he knew that while God is a consuming fire to those who oppose him, he also knew that God is rich in mercy to those who love him. God is rich in mercy this morning. And look at how he treats and rewards those who are humble and surrendered and willing. Look at verse 14. He provides unusual, unbroken blessing. Not just to Obed-Edom, but look at it, to everyone who was around him. This was not a solitary blessing. This was an extensive blessing. It spilled over to his family and his whole household, but it doesn't stop there. Turn over a page to chapter 16. Look at verse 37. So he left Asaph and his relatives there before the ark of the covenant of the Lord to minister before the ark continually as every day's work required. And, oh, here he is again, Obed-Edom with his 68 relatives, Obed-Edom, the son of Jeduthun, and Hasa as gatekeepers. He left Zadok the priest and his relatives the priest before the tabernacle of the Lord in the high place which was at Gibeon to offer burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of burnt offering continually, morning and evening, even according to all that's written in the law of the Lord, which he commanded to Israel. Here's what happens. The Lord not only blessed Obed-Edom, but he blessed the eight children that they had, eight sons, and then those sons and those grandsons go on to serve the Lord and be uniquely blessed by the Lord. They were spiritual leaders who took care of the sacrifices and guarded the gates. So the blessings of God on Obed-Edom were not just for three months. They carried down through the generations simply because Obed-Edom was faithful and willing to accept the challenge of walking by faith. Let me talk to parents and grandparents right now. Don't miss this principle. The impact that you have on your kids is absolutely profound and lasting. It'll go down even to their kids and to their kids if the Lord waits that long. What you instill in them now will be lasting God says, I show my loving kindness from generation to generation to those who love me and keep my commandments. Some of you are raising kids. Some of you are raising your grandkids. Some of you have kids and grandkids. Infuse in them a love for the Lord, but it has to start with you. And as you love the Lord and submit to the Lord, trust the Lord and follow the Lord, guess what? They're going to learn that. Train up a child in the way that they should go. When they're old, they won't depart from it. Our job is to train our kids and our grandkids about the Lord. And when they get older, guess what they're going to do? Mom, Dad, we're pregnant. Start infusing. Start thinking. What did we teach you? How are you going to teach them from day one? Teach them what's right. Teach them what's holy. Because at the end of the day, what do we want said about us? As my dad used to say, that hyphen between the dates on your tombstone, what's in that hyphen 
that we were misguided and short-sighted and unfaithful or that we had God's blessing poured out on us because we lived in the presence of the Lord. Look back at one principle, chapter 15, verse 25. They bring the ark to Jerusalem. This time they do it right. The Levites are carrying the poles. David's wearing a linen ephod. They're sacrificing bulls instead of using them to pull the cart. But first, before they do any of that, the ark has to leave Obed-Edom's house. And as it leaves his house after three months to go to Jerusalem, he has a choice. He can stay where he is and live off the glory of the last three months and think about the memory of his past relationship with the Lord, or he can move with the ark and stay in God's presence and stay in relationship. I want you to notice that Obed-Edom's faith and obedience wasn't stagnant. He had a deep desire to follow the Lord and wanted to do whatever would keep him close to the Lord. So he follows the ark to Jerusalem and the Lord continues to use him and bless him. Now, the privilege of having the Holy Spirit indwelling and filling our lives is that we don't have to physically move from place to place or follow an object to stay in the presence of the Lord. But it is necessary and right to maintain the presence of the Lord, to remain passionate to dwell in his presence, to hunger and thirst after righteousness, and to not neglect it. To not do anything that would drive him away. One of the greatest things that could be said about us is in the parallel passage to this in 2 Samuel 2. Don't turn, I'm done when the Lord says, the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belonged to him on account of the ark of God. Let me put that in April 2011 terms. The Lord blessed that believer and everything that he or she had because they abided in the presence of the Lord. Believer, this week, that's what we need to do. Abiding in the presence of the Lord, and God will say, I will bring you blessing, I will bring you joy. This is not prosperity gospel, this is scripture. I will bless you and honor you. Isn't that an amazing thought that God would honor us? I will bless you and I will honor you in everything that you had. Can you imagine a better sentence to describe your week? On account of the ark of God, because of the ark, the blessing came from God's presence and Obed-Edom welcomed his presence. How do you and I do that? We do that by purifying our lives from sin, by putting off the old, by getting rid of the yuck, by having nothing to do with what is corrupt and dishonorable to the Lord, even if it seems logical. We do that by seeking him, which David apparently for once in his life didn't. And as we listen deferring to the Lord and saying, Lord, you guide me, you direct me, you change me, you tell me your plans, you show me what to do, and I will follow. And as God does that, abiding in him and dwelling in his presence. There's no record anywhere else in Scripture 
that the Ark of the Covenant stayed in somebody's house for even three minutes. But for three months, can you imagine waking up in the morning, you walk out in the den, ugh, and there is the Ark of the Covenant. For three months, it sits in his house. And because his heart was right, and because he dwelled in the presence of God, God blessed him, he blessed his family, he blessed his generations, he blessed hundreds of people. Don't you long this morning for that type of blessing in your lives? Not self-indulgence, just God's hand of favor, God's hand of strength, God's hand of security. I don't know about you, but I want that for my life. I want that for my family. I want that for my kids. I want that for my grandkids. I want that for people around me. And I want it for this church. That God would bless us because we are so ready and willing and desirous to be in his presence. Let's bow our heads together and ask the Lord now to visit our lives. Lord, we are so deeply grateful so deeply grateful for your mercy. So grateful that you are patient and kind and compassionate, that your loving kindness doesn't fail, that you don't give up easily on us when we make that thousandth and ten thousandth mistake and sin that we just keep repeating over and over even though we know better. When we do things that seem logical to us, that are just so short-sighted. Lord, we're selfish creatures, but you have transformed our heart and our mind. You have given us your word. You have allowed us to dwell in your presence. You've filled us with your spirit. You've given us the opportunity to come before your throne of grace. You've given us the body to edify and strengthen each other. So many things, Lord, you have given to us. And what you ask of us, Father, is to abide. So, Lord, I pray for my own life this week. I pray for my family. I pray for this church, for every person that's here. Lord, that we would abide in your presence. Just like the ark of old sitting in Obed-Edom's den. Holy Spirit, that you would be in the center of everything that we do. And when we deviate even a minute moment, that you would draw us back and convict us so that we don't stray. Lord, it's hard for us to understand this text. It's hard to understand in some ways why you acted as you did, but it shows just how serious you are about us being in awe of you and loving you the way you love us. We thank you Father, for the privilege that we're able to do that this morning. We're able to love you as you loved us. Help us, Father, we pray. We thank you that you're our sufficiency and our strength. And we look forward, Father, for how you're going to work in our lives. Lord, put your hand on this church again and again. Guide and direct us. Don't allow us to deviate in any way. And we will give you the praise and glory and we will declare your name among the nations. We thank you and praise you and we love you in Jesus' name.